Hi there, Aaron Odom here. Just letting you know at the beginning of this episode there are a few audio problems, but that's mainly because my guest is from London and we were recording across continents and oceans. But please stick around to the end of the episode. It is definitely worth it. Thank you. My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides. Making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy, while still maintaining respect for the art. Which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Apocalypse, apocalypse, I said, why you want to show up? Hello, my fans and listeners. This is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, coming to you once again for another episode of Euripides, Eumenides. I hope you're enjoying the show this far. And if you're not, well, you're still listening. That's not on me. So I have a fantastic guest on the show today. We met just a little over, I think it was about a year or so ago, as this person was touring through the country in different venues. Uh, he was working for a group at the time called Actors for the London Stage. And therefore, coming to me from London is my good friend, John Dryden Taylor. Hello, John. Hello, Aaron. How are you doing? Do you know, it's actually, um, you're, you're forgetting the lost year. It was two years ago. It was There's a years. whole year in the middle where nothing Oh, my God. That's happened. right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That is correct. I keep doing that. I keep saying to people, you know, last year when we, and they said, no, last year, John, we were all making banana bread. You, you, mean, you mean two years ago. <laughs> I was developing horticulture. <laughs> <laughs> in my experience with you, John, you were doing this really cool production of King Lear in which there were five actors in total. And am, am I right? No, you played at least one of the sisters and then one of the dukes, right? That's right. I played I played Goneril. Every actor growing on in London, growing up in London, knows that they're going to play Goneril in Sheridan, Wyoming one day. It's just about absolutely. Time. I mean, it's it's and, a rite uh, of passage. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, five actors, no director, no stage manager. Um, and I'd heard about actors from the London stage before, and I'd always been quite keen to go on one of their tours, but I'd never really got to grips with what it meant in practice until you turn up in a rehearsal room and there's a script of King Lear on the table and there's four other people in the room and you go, oh, this is it. There's, there's, none, there's none of the standing around in a circle and meeting people from you know, the marketing department that you'll never see again. And there's none, you know, there's not, there's, there's, there's none of the, you know, none of the first day stuff. We literally, there was a table and there were five copies of King Lear and the associates of the company were there and they said, hello, here you all are. Right, we're off. To King Lear. <laughs> we'll arrange the travel. Just go. <laughs> <laughs> and we've been cut. I mean, we'd been cast. We, we, uh, the, uh, the associates had auditioned us and told, told us what the allocation of parts was. But other than that, it was all up to us. 
actually for the London stage is nearly 50 years old. There's a, there's a tradition of various things that get passed down as an oral history, like things you can't do in an AFTLS production. So, for example, when you're playing two people in one scene, you can't move someone around the stage when you're playing someone else. Oh, okay. Um, yep, yep, yep. Because it'll just confuse the audience. So, 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 so you know, you're, you're playing character A, and then you switch into character B. When you go back to character A, he's got to be where you left him. <laughs> right, right. Okay, um, that makes sense. Yeah. I see that. Yeah. Ooh, otherwise, wow. Yeah, otherwise, otherwise you, you, you've got people apparating all over the stage. Um, <laughs> you're like, wait, and, hold on. And, Pew! <laughs> and something, something that's really, really stayed with me uh, when I've not been multi-rolling since then is the importance <laughs> of silhouette. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because one of the things that was really drummed into us by people who've done it before is they need to know the audience because you're playing lots of characters and there's only five of you the audience needs to know instantly who's talking and it's a bit of a blunt instrument when you're playing one part you're not going to have the same stance the same silhouette through an evening when you're only playing one part but but in multi-rolling if you can you know if you do return to a character after a while that silhouette instantly says to the audience right you're back with this one now right and um, right and that and that has as i said that has sort of fed into some how i've worked since not so much am i going to be standing like this in a way that the audience recognizes but just what is this person's silhouette what what do they look like in the most characteristic still pose and it can be quite interesting to work out what the answer to that is yeah and and, and uh, you know there were just some amazing things in that like your goneril was signified only by a scarf and then how you would adapt your body to being that character different from somebody you had just played 20 seconds earlier. Scarfography was a huge part of the rehearsal process. <laughs> because we, we, decide, we decided that scarves were a way to do families and also a way to be fairly fluid as to gender. Right, so, kind of like, um, like tartans in a way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And of course, because I was playing Goneril and her husband, that meant that there was a lot of twisting and turning around scarves. Basically, for Albany Goneril's husband, it was just straight down over my shoulder like a sash. And then for Goneril, it was draped round my shoulder and over my wrist. Right. In a yes. way that I could, uh, you know, I could, I could, I could feminize things a little by, by standing with an out, you know, an arm slightly extended with my palm up and this, this bit of drapery over it. But oh, it did mean wonderful. that in scenes between, between Goneril and, and, and Albany, I was sort of flinging scarves around me like a mad escapologist and <laughs> uh, just, you never heard uh, Harry Houdini say, "Where do you see my gun?" <laughs> <laughs> it was a really exciting way to work in that sense. Um, you know, yeah. it had to be so physically precise. And another thing that playing a scene with yourself goes against all your training, or at least all your, your training and instinct. You know, keep it fast, pick up your cues, keep it running. When you're mm. playing a scene with yourself, you have to receive the information you've just given yourself, so you can't pick up your pick up your cue. So you have to, you have to, you know, character, character, character A says, I hate you. And then you move into character B's position. You make sure you've got a moment of stillness because you can't talk on the move because which person's speaking. You make sure you arrive, you get a moment of stillness. Then you react to I hate you. Then you say I hate you too. And it feels unbelievably hammy and coarse <laughs> in a rehearsal. Well, hey, I mean, you know, you're no Jared Leto. <laughs> I have my issues. I have my issues. Anyway. 
So I left you in Gillette, Wyoming to get on your plane and you flew back home and have done tons of things since then. But, you know, COVID affected the world like crazy. And I mean, uh, for you, London yeah. is still locked yeah. down right now, right? Yeah, we're, uh, the theaters have been closed for a year and two weeks today. Wow. Um, and they, some of them, bring, you know, there was some outdoor theater in the summer. Uh, some of them, some shows briefly opened depending on where they were in the UK in November, December. But there was a big Christmas cancellation in the UK, essentially, when on, I think, the 16th or 17th of December, uh, the theatres closed, uh, you know, non-essential retail closed. Uh, people were told, do not visit your families over Christmas because there's this new strain. Whether people took that seriously or not, I'll leave our massive spike in infections in January to, uh, mm-hmm. uh, for you to work out. Also, I can't, I can't buy, but this is, a, this, this is a handbrake turn, but I can't bypass Gillette, Wyoming. Uh, without saying that the first thing that Fred Lancaster and I did when we got into that airport is we put as much money as we can into those shiatsu massage chairs and sat there <laughs> until our flight was called. Because after a after a three-month tour carrying carrying your set and costumes around from airport to airport and hotel to hotel, that, those little those little plastic prongs in the back were the best feeling I had ever had in my life. <laughs> that's... that's <laughs> You'll have to pardon the pun, but uh, we like to leave an impression. <laughs> and, and, and Zoom, you know, you talk about the pandemic, the way, the way Zoom has become so important in everyone's lives. I'd never heard of Zoom until I was in Sheridan because it, it was the last week of our tour and uh, our, um, our coordinator wanted us to have a group call. So I downloaded this strange new app to my phone. And when we got back to the UK, I deleted it and I said, well, I'll never use that again. <laughs> and here we are yep yep here we are. and actually it's kind of funny you mentioned the idea of different characters and switching in and out i'm actually directing at the end of april a version of hitchcock's the 39 steps uh but as a radio play ah, brilliant. and and i love that this whole thing has like brought about okay so how can we still do theater yeah i know it's not intimate and i know you're not there but people still need stories to be told so how do we do this And I love that it's like brought back this resurgence in radio plays because it's really a cool lost format because it just doesn't meet the times. And now it does again. I I couldn't agree more about radio and uh, as as an actor. And it was something that was very, very useful when I when it came to doing something like uh, actors from the London stage. Uh, I didn't formally train. I went from university straight into the business. But the two things that I did most at the beginning of my career were sketch comedy uh, and radio. And in terms of being able to create a character and nail a character straight away, both verbally in radio and, and physically in sketch comedy, was, was so, so useful in, in character creation. It's a shorthand, but you know, anyone who's done a sketch show, or anyone who's done a sketch show well, knows how to present a character different physically in each sketch. Yeah, going back to um, the ideas of you know, knowing the rules of the game and understanding that there are certain things within certain genres that, um, you know, work and then some that don't. Very interesting that we got to this point and uh, <laughs> because it uh, kind of leads into what we're going to talk about today. So this story, John, are you ready? This is a fun one. Here we go. Here we go. So uh, let me ask you this. Yeah. What do you know about the origins of the French Renaissance, particularly in theater. Oh, wow. Well, this is going to be, this is going to be potentially very, very embarrassing because my degree is in French and Italian. Oh, no kidding. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but I, I leaned very hard on the Italian side of things. When you said 
French Renaissance, I thought, oh, right, well, that'll be... And then my mind went completely blank. I, uh, <laughs> I'm, this may be a process of re-education, I think. Well, wonderful. Because <laughs> I'm sure I knew about theatre in the French Renaissance at some point, but um, I can't say I feel as if I do at the moment. OK, OK. Well, my, my, de- my degree was a very, very long time ago, Aaron. I'm a very old man. I, I, you, but you look great, so who's <laughs> that? <laughs> I'm finding out through several of these episodes that I have French terms that I bring up and I don't know how to speak French. So feel free to completely correct me as needed. So here we go. Just this past week, we passed an anniversary that doesn't get celebrated all that often. On April 13th, 1598, King Henri IV issued the Edict of Nantes in which he granted anyone following certain Christian faiths equal rights in religious practice, even though France was still considered a Catholic nation. The proclamation followed a series of political and often military conflicts between French Catholics and a Calvinist faction of Protestants known as the Huguenots. Now, this battle for religious equality had been waged over 30 years. And even though Henri issued the Edict of Nantes as a measure to settle disputes between two powerful opposing forces in the country, it also effectively signed his death warrant. Treaties will do that. Uh, They will. Oh, yes, yes. Henri, however, was no stranger to assassination attempts. Sounds like it happened a lot in those days, but to very little success, or at least very little success to uh, Henry's level. And even though Henri (laughs) converted from the Huguenot faith to Catholicism in 1593, his assassination attempts all came from Catholics. (laughs) Keeping it in the family. Yeah, right. (laughs) Uh, The the only part of my family, I traced my family tree years ago, and the only part of the Taylor side, my father's side, that isn't uh, entirely born and bred in London uh, is um, that part of the family that uh, immigrated as Huguenots in the 17th century. So there is there's a little bit of my blood in, in my, of my blood in this story. Yeah, I was um, I 16 something. A bunch of Huguenots came over to the east end of London, and uh, my particular bloodline was so lazy that they stayed there for the next 400 <laughs> years. <laughs> We're fine. Uh, <laughs> and I, I'm realizing I'm pronouncing it wrong. Huguenots. Right. Okay. Huguenots. Well, here we go. Here we go. I'll just see how much of this I screw up. <laughs> now, I must here state in my research, I never found any definitive evidence that points to the Catholic Church as an institution putting out a hit on Henri. It sounds like lower class religious fanatics took it upon themselves to, air quotes, make things right. Right then. Mm -hmm. The first such attempt was deflected about a month after Henri's conversion on August 27th, 1593, when assassin Pierre Barriere confessed his regicidal intentions to a priest, possibly to beg for forgiveness. Nonetheless, the priest turned him in and the assassin was sentenced to death by being broken on the wheel and then dismemberment. Oh, I mean, you're pretty dismembered after the wheel, surely. Right, right, right. Now, uh, (laughs) sounds like you're familiar with the wheel. My listeners might not be. Uh, Let's talk about what happens when you're broken on the wheel. Well, what happened is the condemned man would be marched into public forum and placed on a scaffold for all to see. He would be laid down with some sort of space between his limbs, uh, the kind of space that might exist if you sat on your couch and put your foot up on the coffee table. (laughs) Then a large wagon wheel that is rimmed in iron would be dropped on the limbs in attempts to get them to snap in half. Usually they'd start with the shins, then the thighs, then the forearms, and then finish with the upper arms, one area at a time until all were broken. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. This 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 is what I this is what I mean about the dismay. I mean, at that point, you're, you're surely not in any position to go. Oh, please don't detach my shattered leg. Please, please, <laughs> right, please right. leave it by the few sinews it still has left. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Then dismemberment. Uh, for those of you that don't know, they would tie the wrists and ankles to four separate horses and send the horses in separate directions, ripping you effectively in four different pieces. You gotta hand it to the French. They were clever. <laughs> it, it, it's all very sort of theatrically efficient, isn't it? It's, mm -hmm. it, it is aimed at the crowd. You just think we, we could very quickly and easily end this person's life for his treason. But also... We could get loads of people to watch us dropping wheels on it. Right, right. <laughs> All with the intent of, you know what this person did, and this is, yeah. this is what happens if you do that thing. But you know those people who are yeah, out absolutely. there like passing peanuts between them and like, yeah, this is a good time. <laughs> 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 I mean, we talk about that in, in episode one, their interregnum one, where we talk about Oliver Cromwell and being exhumed and having his yeah. body put on trial and then, quote, executed by chopping off his head. Boy, you're really showing him there. I, I can give you, I can give you, just no one knows where Oliver Cromwell's heart is anymore. Um, right. I went to the same college, I went to the same college as Oliver Cromwell, and there was a long-held tradition that only one academic at the college would know where uh, precisely uh, within the college grounds Cromwell's heart was buried. And it was passed down oh. and down and down and down and down. And then in the last 20 or 30 years or so, uh, the last person who'd been been told it and rather inconveniently died without telling anyone whoops sorry for the oh sidebar but I God, thought that's so funny that's great okay here we go back to uh, assassination attempts <laughs> the next attempt on Henri's life came on December 27th 1594 when Jean Chatel was able to sneak into the king's chamber in the royal palace while the king was helping two men up who had kneeled to show their loyalty to the king Jean emerged from the shadows with a knife. He was only able to clip the king on his hip with the knife and was prevented from escaping the chamber by the king's jester, Mathurin del Valois. <laughs> Trust the performers. That's oh, right. Was can't get out, sent. there's an actor in the way. <laughs> Chatel was also sentenced to death by dismemberment, but not before the hand with which he struck the king was burned off with molten sulfur. Oh. <laughs> That's not fun. I'll show you. So, <laughs> notice that these two attempts came before the edict was issued in 1598. Apparently, word had gotten around that assassination attempts on the king had a batting average of zero, and Henri <laughs> was safe for the next 12 years after issuing the edict. However, on May 14th, 1610, the king was assassinated when his carriage got stuck in traffic and his assailant jumped in the carriage and stabbed him between the ribs. The assailant's name was Francois Ravaillac. After the assault, Francois was easily captured and imprisoned. For the next few weeks while he awaited trial, he was tortured around the clock in order to uh, force a confession out of him to identify any accomplices. While he consistently gave up no co-conspirators, he did reveal his motives. You see, sometime earlier, Ravaillac had some supernatural vision about how to help the king convert all the Huguenots to Catholicism. While he didn't have his message effectively communicated to the king, he got a little butt hurt. <laughs> then, when the king chose to invade the Spanish Netherlands, which were ruled by Henri's political rivals, the Habsburgs, Ravaillac believed this to be a direct assault on the Catholic Church, and his assassination plan came into being. I'm quite... 
I'm quite suspicious of this traffic jam of carriages, aren't you? Yeah, it's right. Like, it's just, it seems that, a little. That, that seems. Oh, <laughs> oh dear, we're, we're we're in a back we're in a backlog of of thirty carriages either side. Like happens, uh, <laughs> you know. Every just day. Got, I mean, how, just got dislodged from the Suez got, Canal. <laughs> <laughs> There was that very long carriage that decided to turn back around. <laughs> I just don't think carriage jams were a thing, were they? Mm, might have been. Might have been. Those are the reports I hear. Sending a messenger to say, you know, honey, I'm yeah. going to be late. Put the put the oven on. Or <laughs> yeah, I give me a pigeon. I have to send something. <laughs> I want to know. Who, I want to know who was who was in those other carriages because I reckon right. they're right. all mates of Ravayak. <laughs> <laughs> Upon trial on May 27th. Ravayak was quickly convicted and sentenced to death as he basically put up no complaint. He declared he had done what he needed to do, and now death was just his next step. Here's a little description of what happened on the rest of the day once Ravayak was uh, taken into public to be executed. Quote, he was scalded with burning sulfur, molten lead, and boiling oil and resin, his flesh then torn apart by pincers. Then his arms and legs were attached to horses and pulled in opposite directions. After an hour and a half of this horrendous cruelty, Ravayak died. Yeah, you would. (laughs) After 90 minutes, okay, I'm going to give up the ghost. (laughs) When he finally expired, the entire populace, no matter what their rank, hurled themselves on the body with their swords, knives, sticks, or anything anything else to hand and began beating, hacking, and tearing at it. The executioner... What? Supposed to have the body of the regicide reduced to ashes to complete the ritual demanded by law, could find nothing but his shirt. Yeah, when you said it, on what was left of the body, I mean, after the sulfur and the lead and the being pulled apart by horses, <coughs> what, what was there? An earlobe? With, yeah. What's going to be left? It's still got a beat to it. Hook it up to the horses. <laughs> <laughs> Quick, quick, stab that foot. Away. <laughs> I mean, there were even reports like the, the executioners could see people like tearing chunks of flesh off of what was left. And some of them even like bit into it. Aye, they were just, aye, aye. they were so incensed about the death of their king. So I'm sure, John, you're wondering at this point, what does this have to do with theater? It's crossed my mind. <laughs> Well, I promise I'm getting there. I could have just started right here, but the events leading up to this were just so colorful. (laughs) (laughs) But moreover, they exhibit just how seriously people in France took things back then. So when Henri died, his eldest son, Louis XIII, took up the throne. One problem, Louis was only nine years old at the time. Ah, one of those. Now, according to law, Louis could have taken up the throne for his own at age 13. However, Louis didn't take command until he was 16. And up to that time, his mother, Marie de Medici, served as regent and more or less ran things. However, when he turned 16, Louis apparently wasn't pleased with how the country was being run and had several people removed from power or exiled, including his own mother. <laughs> Every 16-year-old's dream. <laughs> the way you run this country is so annoying. <laughs> Just get out. Get out. Just get out. I, I'm the king. I didn't ask to be king. <laughs> didn't ask to be king. But... Oh, God. Now, he flopped around with quite a few different advisors and methods of rule until he was finally able to appoint 
Cardinal Richelieu as his primary advisor. There he is. 1623. There he is. <laughs> or rather, at 1624. Sorry. Now, Louis would have been 23, but happy to have someone older and wiser looking out for what direction he should steer his kingdom. Among his many goals, which all revolved around centralizing power in the hands of the king, Richelieu was a major proponent of the arts. Despite the many governmental and social policies that Richelieu proposed, among them was the consolidation of a specifically French aesthetic, including developing a specifically French form of theater. Uh Regarding theater, Richelieu didn't exactly 100% adhere to Italian design ideas, which were more or less the only things he deemed worthy to review at the time. Richelieu did want to separate anything Italian from anything French, thinking that inspiring a sort of nationalism might bring the country together somewhat. But Italian ideas could easily be seen as foundational. Yeah, nothing nothing brings a country together like nationalism, does it? (laughs) Everyone's always on the same page with that one. (laughs) ironic i'm talking to somebody from britain about this Uh, (laughs) (laughs) i i I remember when when i was on that tour with afdls and i I was in a bar and i got some food and i got a beer and um the the bartender said um that'll be 1776 please and i I really wanted to say well there's no need to rub it in Oh my god! Uh, but but you know, I never never got to say them's fighting words, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Now, again, the intent was to make a French style for just about everything, including theater. So, looking what Italians did with their Renaissance, there was something of an appeal to reevaluate classical works, here meaning Greek and Roman, and adapting or enhancing them for modern day. Hence, neoclassicism, new classics. Yep. Now, Italy did have its own neoclassical period, almost directly following its Renaissance, in which it began to formalize strictures for art criticism. So with that in mind, combined with the idea that Richelieu was a Catholic priest, and that he was big on making sure that the arts supported what he considered to be French morality and propriety, what better way than to establish rules? Hey! Rules help control the fun. <laughs> No, they tell you what fun is. They tell you. (laughs) A group of seven French authors known as La Pléiade had already begun to standardize what they considered to be drama in 1550. Now, in 1635, when Richelieu was doing all this, he was obnoxious about collecting books and manuscripts on the arts. It said that he had something like 9,000 different tomes in his own personal private library. That's a few. So Richelieu handed these ideas and others to a new group of artists, and thus the beginnings of what became to be known as the Académie Française was established as more of a review board than anything. Using these ideas handed to them, the new Academy determined that for a written work to be considered a play, it had to follow these rules. Number one, verisimilitude. (laughs) In other words, act better. (laughs) <laughs> do it right Is i'm basically... sorry that wasn't realistic enough and now no. you go to prison <laughs> yes exactly so for their purposes it meant anything that's on stage has to be something that can actually happen in reality therefore any hints of the supernatural or gods interfering in human affairs was strictly forbidden so all the greeks are out it's a yep. neoclassical music be- movement, but you can't do anything Greek. <laughs> we liked kind of what they did, but no. <laughs> <laughs> now, here's, here's another one. This also meant no soliloquies. Oh. <laughs> I mean, 
Well, I mean, it, it just wasn't considered believable for a character to orate to an audience or to thin air. I have some sympathy with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's, here's, how they, here's how a lot of playwrights deal with that. They're like, we still want to soliloquize. So they would invent a character that this protagonist or antagonist would soliloquize to. So it was often like oh. a good friend or a chambermaid or the butler. <laughs> this, I mean, this, this is my casting bracket you're talking about right, right here. <laughs> the number of times I've sat on stage pretending to be interested in a more famous actor wanging on about their problems. <laughs> uh, that's, 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 uh, that's very much the kind of part I play. I mean, um, it's just so much of that, but I'm not sure if I love him. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> Every one of those characters has to make a face that says, I think this character's making very bad decisions, but unfortunately I don't have the lines to express that. <laughs> I'm only a footman, you see. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Rule number two, decorum. As Horace suggested, plays are to entertain, but they are also to educate. So these plays should be used as examples of how to lead good moral lives. This is fascinating because the notion of poetic justice more or less came out of this era of theater. Virtue is rewarded, vice is punished. Be good, not bad. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> the good ended happily, the bad unhappily, that is the meaning of fiction. Oh, and plus, don't make fun of people or have violence on stage. It's just bad manners. <laughs> <laughs> okay, number three. Tragedy and comedy are separate. That's it. Aye, aye, aye. Don't mix. If you do, bad. So we don't have clowns and tragedies or moments of deep-hearted reflection in comedies. Keep them separate. I mean, they, that, that, that's where we play the, the fun new game, 17th century clerics or modern commissioning editors, which said this. <laughs> now, this also drew a really stark class division line in that tragedies must still, that now they are again about only nobility because their downfalls were much bigger than those of commoners and commoners must be about the middle class and lower because their foibles are ultimately fixable, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when I was doing that bit of research, the only thing that came to mind was that incredibly stark movie a few years ago. Was that called Precious? about the young African-American oh, yes. girl who finds out she's pregnant and then she has AIDS yeah. and then, therefore her baby is going to have AIDS. I'm like, that's not a comedy. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 remember, I remember seeing that film and thinking what, um, what amazing performances. And of course, the amazing 30 Rock joke when Tracy Jordan gets, um, gets his Oscar for being in a film called Hard to Watch based on the novel Stone Cold Bummer by Manipulate. <laughs> yep, yep. Exactly. <laughs> All right, here we go. Number four, rule number four, the unities. Time, uh, place, yes, time, place, and action, more or less standardized in this day by using Aristotle's poetics. So here they are in no specific order of importance. Number one, time. A play should only take place in roughly 24 hours, no more, no less. Now, this was never officially standardized by Aristotle, but rather observed from tragedies. He watched them and he went, it looks like the majority of them take place in about 24 hours or around. <laughs> <laughs> place. The place should only take place in one specific location. This is never mentioned by Aristotle anywhere. <laughs> Action. The play should really only have one specific plot line. Subplots just confuse everything. Aristotle kind of mentions this, but not really. 
Yeah, I mean, I do have some sympathy with, with unity of time in that the most pointless conversation in a rehearsal room, you'll have had these, everyone's had them, is that moment where somebody pointlessly, for no reason, says, hang on, is this scene Wednesday or Thursday? Then everyone chimes in and says, well, scene four has to be a Monday night. Uh, and, you know, and, well, maybe there's a day pass between then. And, so this must be Friday. I'm always the one standing in the corner listening to all these arguments going, I don't think my Friday morning acting is very different from my Thursday morning acting. I can play any day of the week. Just, just can we get on with the bloody? No, no. When I hear, when I hear that somebody has canceled my newspaper subscription on a Wednesday night, I feel very differently about it than I would on a Saturday afternoon. Reaction is reaction. And rule number five, rule number five, five acts. A play has to be told in five acts, no more, no less. Again, it worked in Greece and Rome. Why not for the French in the 17th century? That's it. <laughs> and outside Corneille and Racine, I wonder if there are any plays that pass those tests. Uh, yeah, right. And uh, yeah, you kind of hinted at uh, uh, where we're heading with this. So needless to say, based not just on the strictures put into place by the Académie Française, but also because of the punishments exacted on the men who attempted and completed regicide, I think it can be safe to say that French culture at the time wasn't messing around. <laughs> Do you know what it wasn't here for? Your shit. <laughs> Color outside the lines? That is not appreciated. <laughs> not one bit. <laughs> so, enter Pierre Corneille. There he is. There he is. Cornet began, began his life following in his father's footsteps as an attorney. Mainly as a hobby to start, Cornet wrote comedies. And as a goal, Cornet sought to upgrade comedies so they simply weren't about middle to lower classes, but could include the foibles of the upper class as well. As a lawyer in the city of Rouen, which is the second largest city in France at the time, Cornet often dealt with the upper class and really didn't see why comedy couldn't include them. Here's a quote from Cornet about his comedy Melité. It was unknown for a comedy to provoke laughter without ridiculous characters such as clownish servants, parasites, braggart captains, pedant doctors, and so forth. This one achieved its effect by the vivacious mood of the characters of a higher social rank than those one sees in Plotus and Terence, who are merely shopkeepers. <laughs> it matters more. I actually, when I taught uh, Roman comedy, I, I never used any Roman comedies. I showed them a funny thing happens on the way to the forum. Because I went, absolutely. They tell Roman comedy better than Roman comedy did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very embarrassed about the time I was in a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Uh -oh. It was when I was a student. It was directed by my ex who cast me as Senex, the old man who can't get laid. Right. Um, which, was, which was, you know, felt like a bit of a dig anyway. <laughs> and um, I was 22 and I had oh. really good legs and I just kept wearing, kept wearing my toga higher and higher and higher as a way of sulking about being cast as this unattractive old character, went on stage basically in Roman hot pants. And I'm very, mm -hmm. very embarrassed about it now. <laughs> sleeping out, sleeping in. <laughs> um, <laughs> now this comedy by uh, Corneille picked up steam in 1629, several years before the Academy Francaise was founded. And in the several years following, more of Corneille's comedies gained steam and began to picked up, be picked up and performed by many companies who made their way through Rouen. In fact, it was due to the popularity of Corneille's early comedies that Richelieu invited Corneille to become part of his new group that would eventually become the Academy. 
Now, before it became the Academy in 1635, the group was known as Les Cinq Auteurs. Did I say that okay? Uh, Les Cinq Auteurs. Les Cinq Auteurs. Oh, yeah, I keep forgetting the damn eye. Les Cinq Auteurs. Les Cinq Auteurs, or the Society of Five Authors. Richelieu's intent was that he would send ideas for the plays to the authors and they would write them out. Considering that it was a Catholic cardinal in charge of directing the morality of France, it can probably be understood that there were some unfortunate boundaries on what the five authors would come up with. In fact, it is suggested in some texts that Richelieu would more or less want to be included on anything written, help write some of it, and would most definitely write the third act, particularly of tragedies, which often included the climax of the play. And this is a guy that can have you covered in sulfur, right? So you're going to, if he says, if, I, if he says I want to write the act three button, you let him write the act three button. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. I'll just, I'll just punch it up when you're done. <laughs> now, Corneille was not too excited about these limitations and broke from the group in 1635. As in Greek and Roman tragedies, Corneille appealed to folk tales from history because he enjoyed telling these grand stories of folk heroes that people could really identify with. And for his most memorable play, Corneille selected a story from Spanish folklore, an 11th century folk hero who became known as El Cid, which is poorly translated from the Arabic as the Lord. And Corneille adapted most of his work from the Spanish play El Cid by Guillaume de Castro, written in 1621, Spanish playwright. So, are, you're familiar with it, I'm sure. I know there's an opera of it, uh-huh. um, but I say that never having heard the opera or seen the play. I'm literally just saying, I know a thing, I know one thing. I got it! There's I know it is. I got one. I get a point for knowing there's an opera, but now you're going to tell yep, me all about it. There's a point. So, here's the breakdown of Corneille's play. In the city of Seville, two young lovers of noble birth, the beautiful Chimene and the handsome Rodrigue, are in a bit of a predicament. They want to marry, but their fathers are in something of a disagreement about it. You see, Shimen's father wants her to marry his buddy, who's much older, and Shimen is not really into that. It's when Rodrigue's father slaps Shimen's father across the face, stuff starts getting real. Shimen's <laughs> <laughs> father challenges Rodrigue to a duel, and Rodrigue ends up killing Shimen's father. Ooh-hoo-hoo. Afterwards, Rodrigue returns to Chemin's home to confess and apologize. Chemin's maid meets Rodrigue and lets him know that Chemin must now kill Rodrigue in order to keep the family's honor. Chemin approaches and Rodrigue hides so he can eavesdrop. Chemin confesses to the maid that is left that she knows what the right thing to do is, that she needs to kill Rodrigue and defend her father's honor, but she's not sure if she can do it. Rodrigue then emerges, having heard this, and presents Shimen with his sword and instructs her to take his life. It's the right thing to do. In the end, though, she can't do it. Now, amidst all this, they receive word that the Moors will be attacking the city. Rodrigue leaves, Uh knowing he must defend the city. Soon after, Rodrigue returns because he's become a war hero and his enemies dub him Le Cid and plans to return to Seville and Shimen. However, in his absence, the king has convinced Shimen that Rodrigue is obviously dead. Thus, she is sworn to marry another. But when Rodrigue shows up just in the nick of time, she saves herself from devoting her life to a convent in order to avoid marrying someone who she does not love. And after some significant persuasion, agrees to marry Rodrigue. And then they do. Yay! Happy ending. Do you know, I was, I was worried for Shimon and Rodrigue for most of that. Yeah. And I'm, uh, I'm very glad to hear it turned out all right yeah. for them. Yeah. Uh, I'm, quite, I'm, I'm, quite surpri- I'm quite surprised that... Um, it was made into an opera. It's a Masnay opera, I think, because 
uh, opera heroines aren't usually so ballsy as she men. They tend to wander around saying, "Would it would it help if I killed myself? Should I, should I take some poison? Will that will that will that help?" I've um, been wanting so to, to yeah. jump off of my window ledge for a long time now, <laughs> and now I have the chance. <laughs> so hooray, hooray for the seed for for Cornelia and, yes. and for everyone living. The play was a hit. What a wonderful story. What a wonderful ordeal. It met with great success as Corneille was a master at recreating the stories of epic heroism and translating them to the current audience. However, uh -oh. the Academy took quite an affront. You see, with the rules already established, although not enforceable by law, the Academy looked at the entirety of Le Cid and had more than a few problems with it. First and foremost, the sheer number of things that happened in a play could not have possibly taken place in 24 hours. I think a unity of time is absolutely screwed if you've got time to go away, fight a war, and get a reputation. <laughs> that's, a, that's, yeah. that's a hell of a day. <laughs> Damn, that guy's fast. <laughs> Plus, there was quite a problem with the play obviously taking place in more than one location. But more than anything, the issue was that Shimen did not immediately avenge her father's murder, thus negating the idea of poetic justice. This couldn't possibly meet the standards, could it? Wow. Well, this is what Richelieu determined to be his quest. You see, Richelieu and Corneille had something of a disagreement with each other when the playwright had left the society. So this argument <laughs> may have been a little more personal than professional. According to Richelieu, <laughs> obviously Corneille strayed from the path and delivered something that couldn't possibly be theater, correct? For starters, this couldn't have all possibly happened in one day. Taking the war with the Moors out of the picture, Rodrigue being exiled from the kingdom and then returning, that alone would probably take more than one day. But adding the Moors back into it, like you suggested, not only an attack, but an attack significant enough to have Rodrigue be given a new name out of respect for his valor in battle, we're talking about a battle that went on for hours, if not days at the very least. It's impossible that this could have all happened in one day. Now, other minor infractions, take, play takes place in several locations, although Cornet would rebut that by saying that the play didn't break unity of place because all the scenes took place within the royal court of Seville. <laughs> nice. It was in the palace. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was just thinking about how unbelievably short an Académie Française Hamlet would be. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> it's five acts, so, so it's okay yep, there, okay, but it starts there, on, the bat, on the... It starts on the battlements, where they don't see a ghost. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I just have a premonition to kill my uncle. Yeah, I'd, I'd better kill my uncle. Done it! <laughs> we watched a play, and, and then I just stabbed him. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the end of you. you oh, and then everything it, happens on the battlements. Yep. And as soon as Hamlet finds out about his uncle, he kills him. And there's absolutely no play at all. <laughs> no play. Oh, and then he, it would have to end uh, tragically, so he'd have to kill himself. He felt bad. I've killed my uncle. Oh, something about honor. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yep. Now, in addition, Cornet's play ended happily. Thus, it could not possibly be a tragedy because only comedies end in marriage. But above everything else, for Chemin to have conflicted feeling about killing her father's murderer and then marrying said murderer... This is just not what proper ladies do. <laughs> so therefore, in order to reinforce the idea of managing the arts and the culture of France, Richelieu received blessing from the king and formally established the Académie Française, but this time for real. Now it was official and legal. Oh, man. 
And right to have such a stank about a play, <laughs> you go to the king and you go, "Listen, I just need you to sign this." All the other playwrights saying, "Oh, thanks, Pierre. You had to have your happy ending, didn't you? Now we're all screwed. We're only allowed to write this one play." <laughs> and it's first order of business: analyze the seed to determine if it would receive the stamp of approval from the Academy. Conflict wasn't all that difficult to understand. On one hand, Richelieu had somewhat defined a framework that was definitively restrictive, but with the idea to develop a national cultural identity. On the other hand, Corneille was doing what he could to prove that such strictures might not have been necessary. While the play was immensely popular with audiences, it was equally as infamous with academics and those who declared loyalty to Richelieu. <laughs> <laughs> so like you were saying before, damn it, you ruined it for everybody. <laughs> So this is great, I love this. Critics and rival jealous playwrights took to writing a series of pamphlets, all wishing to turn popular favor against Lacide, even though the audiences still seem to really enjoy the play. Oh man, nothing changes, nothing changes. <laughs> all it takes is for a casting director on Twitter to say, oh, someone was a bit late today. And you've got 900 actors going, that's outrageous, I'd never be late, here's my CV. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's that whole thing of this art form that's supposed to speak truth to power and, and ends up going, oh, here's some power. I might be quiet. <laughs> here's some power. <laughs> oh, God. Meanwhile, the Academy debated within its ranks. One member of the Academy, Georges de Scudery, and I don't know, uh, he wrote the following <laughs> critique. The play's subject is worthless, that it violates the principal rules of dramatic poetry, that it has many bad verses and that all of its beauties are plagiarized. <laughs> That's a one-star review, isn't it? Boom, yeah. Here's your Yelp. <laughs> In 1638, three years after the play had premiered, the Academy announced its decision. They took everything into account. The popularity among the masses, Corneille's obvious flouting of established rules, and the massive outpouring among critics to uphold these rules. The final judgment was declared in the publication Sentiments of the Academy about Lycide, uh, mostly the written work of Academy member Jean Chapelain. 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 Chapelain concluded that Corneille had obviously taken too much liberty with the unity of time. How could all of that happen in one day? But the main concern was that decorum had not been followed as it showed a woman casting off what should be her traditional honor and morality to marry a man who was apparently not worth it. Thus, not only was this work not considered to be a work of drama, but that its equality was poor, because according to Chapelain, popularity does not necessarily make something good. <laughs> well, I've got 80 billion Big Macs that, uh, <laughs> that have something to say in that conversation. When I was writing this, uh, just this section, I was thinking about when the first Jackass movie came into theaters uh. and critics just went, this is ter This is not even a movie, and everybody else knew that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. They went, this is an opportunity for these guys to have a bigger budget, say a lot of the swear words they'd like to be saying, and do grosser stuff. There's no, there's no point going to a Jackass movie and going, hang on, this is just a load of unconnected <laughs> silly pranks. It's like, what ticket did you pay for? Was the seed running this whole time? These three years, they were... Trying oh, to yeah. work out whether it was evil. 
it was still on. Yeah, yeah, it was being performed here and there, and you know, just fine. People were like, "Hey, we want to see that Lacid thing." Okay, cool. Cornet was, in short, annoyed. <laughs> he responded with an essay of his own of the three unities, time, place, and action, in which he pointed out several reasons why plays don't necessarily need to follow these, not the least of which was the fact that Aristotle only mentioned one of them in his poetics, and rather than being defined law of theater, it was more of an observation on repeated viewings. While he also attempted to defend the offense to decorum, his overall defense sounded arguably self-important and blustering. Here we go. Here's an excerpt from the conclusion. It is easy for critics to be severe, but if they were to give 10 or a dozen plays to the public, they might perhaps slacken the rules more than I do as soon as they have recognized through experience what constraint their precision brings about and how many beautiful things it vanishes from our stage. Now that I kind of go, yeah, you're correct. Yeah. I mean, like you yeah, said, I mean, Hamlet is spurred on by his, his, the ghost of his father. Yeah. <laughs> Not just a whim. <laughs> I mean, in, in the Academy process, Macbeth. Macbeth fights a battle, goes home, doesn't meet anyone on the way, just goes home. Cornet <laughs> <laughs> uh, goes on. However that may be, these are my opinions, or if you prefer, my heresies concerning the principal points of dramatic art. And I do not know how better to make the ancient rules agree with modern pleasures. In other words, I've done my best. Everyone loves it. Screw you. <laughs> you don't like it? Don't watch it. <laughs> In the end, the judgment of the Academy was upheld. Lacid was apparently not a play, but the Academy offered no alternative to what it really was. They just knew what it wasn't. And because the debate was so public, this basically fashioned how playwriting was conducted over the next few centuries in France and <laughs> elsewhere. Yeah. Basically, if a playwright wanted to have a play produced in France, it would have to meet these standards or it wouldn't have received official approval. <laughs> and so, I mean, straight back to that quote from Corneille, you know, there's so much that you exclude. Right. You know, I mean, I've been, joke, been joking about two Shakespeare plays, but, um, you know, keep the unities in place. And I think you, you've only got the plays written in France in that period. Because right. as you say, the Greeks don't follow all of them all the time. No. The, de the decorum stuff is very dodgy because drama is about people making bad decisions. Right. And if you, right. If you, if you say, <laughs> these, these, these characters must always make the correct decision, then you've got a play called The Five Winners. Right. And, <laughs> and, and, Romeo meets Juliet. Juliet falls in love. The nurse says, he's a Montague. She goes, oh, well, hell with that. Yeah, and also, that's the end of the play. You can't have a balcony <laughs> scene because that's going into the next day. <laughs> <laughs> Romeo meets Juliet at a ball. They say, too bad we can't get together. The end. The old man comes to Oedipus and says, yeah, the, the Sphinx was right. You killed your father and married your mother. And Oedipus goes, oh, shit, and leaves. No, he goes, Sphinx? What Sphinx? Nothing supernatural here, thank you very much. That was just an angry cat. <laughs> With a lady's face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, here we go. Almost wrapped it up here. Cornet gave up on theater for a few years after the decision, but then returned a few years later, and his plays definitely followed the rules quite more closely. Many years later, in 1670, Cornet and new playwright Jean Racine were challenged to write a play about the same incident. 
neither playwright knew that the other was basically writing the same play. <laughs> and when they were both produced, it was ultimately Racine's that became more popular. Racine went on to write some of the best tragedies that came out of this period because he was fanatical about following all of these rules, figuring out how they could be used. I, I still absolutely love Phaedra. Phaedra yeah. is brilliant because what, what do you have happen? You have a woman who has these feelings for her stepson, Hippolytus, and she's also conflicted because she goes, well, my husband's probably dead, so I can move on, can't I? She confesses to Hippolytus. He goes, that's kind of weird, and runs off. <laughs> and then they get word that her husband, Theseus, is alive and coming home. Yeah, so, bad day. Bad day for Phaedra. Right? And she just goes, damn, well, that sucks. And then tries to convince Theseus that Hippolytus came onto her. So just, <laughs> just, you know, it's like, wow, okay, those are a lot of conflicting emotions. And he did it right. They're all in the same day all in one place, all at one time. Yeah. There's no ghosts. She doesn't soliloquize to anybody but her chambermaid when she confesses. And then follows decorum in killing herself by drinking poison at the end. Yeah. That particular element of decorum, as you say, you know, in, in France, the, uh, the Académie Française structure sort of influenced drama for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. But, but oh. worldwide, I, 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 you know, I remember going to see uh, Mrs. Warren's Profession like mm. 80, 80 years after it was first performed, I'm not knowing anything about the play and thinking because it was a 19th, 19th slash early 20th century play. Oh, well, this woman ran a, ran a brothel. She'll die at the end because that's what the Victorian and Edwardian morality right. demanded. And mm -hmm. then you get to the end of the play and she's still standing and you go, well, this is interesting. <laughs> Rub my hands. Where's the sequel? <laughs> <laughs> what happens when they don't die? You know, the, the tentacles of it are all over drama, aren't they? Oh, man. I love this turn of phrase that I came up with. After the playoff, hey! Corneille more or less retired from playwriting and died in his Paris home in 1684. The Académie Française still exists today and is still the defining agency in all things French culture. There are now 40 seats on the council and they are known as the Immortals due to the motto of the Academy to immortality. This motto is inscribed on the official seal of the Academy, which is on the original charter granted by Cardinal Richelieu to establish the Academy. And that's the story of the Quarrel of Lacide. Fantastic stuff. Wow. Oh, that's, that's such, I really, I'm so grateful to have heard that because there's just bits and pieces that I knew dotted around this incredibly interesting story. And it, it's the Academy Francaise that still monitors the French language, isn't it? So, yes, yes. So they, they determine uh, what's, they, what are words and, and how to use what them. What are words? Which is which is has become far more difficult in 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 the digital age, because oh, right. um, they allowed things like the comping for campsite, the parking for for car park, and um, <laughs> a lot. And but now you know, I think there was a, there was a whole debate over whether everything from World Wide Web through you know internet, <laughs> uh, all, all these words that are crucial to modern life that don't exist outside American English, essentially. Right. Um, whether they're going to be incorporated into French. And I, th I think the Academy sort of has lost that battle. I think people talk about, you know, l'email and, and, and all that. Oh, thing. Yeah, right, right. And, and, you know, I mean, uh, le selfie and whatever. <laughs> it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you can't avoid it. it. The people will decide what they're going to say. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it kind of reminds me of all the people who would get really stuffy about hip hop. You know, I'm <laughs> like, 
You have a group of people who have collectively had a similar experience and they are speaking to their experience. And we're just going, but why did they have to use so many F's and N words? <laughs> I, I, have, I have never felt older. I caught myself saying something so middle-aged last night <laughs> to a friend of mine. And um, we were talking about the success of a certain single with a certain acronym by uh, Nicki Minaj and Cardi B. And um, hmm. I thought, oh, I yeah. Thought, do you know what? Do, do you know what? Because uh, I, thought, I thought all the fuss over it was ridiculous. And I said, and, but I said it in such a middle-class <laughs> way, middle, middle-aged, middle-aged way. I, I just said, you know, even, even beyond the subject matter, the craft of the way that song is put together. <laughs> And I thought that is just what, that is just what someone old says. That is that is the dad at the school dance going, "What's this one? I'll, it's got a good bit." And you know, it comes to us all. <laughs> See, uh, my my favorite uh, musician is Trent Reznor, Nine Inch Nails, and um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it was uh, I think 2013. He released an album that was pretty much all electronic because he went well. I guess this is where we're headed. So I'm going to give you what is coming. And then he played on concert. He, he, he went to Lollapalooza that year and did one of the singles off it. And it's like him and a guy to his right with the synthesizer, guy to his left with the synthesizer. And next to him is a stool with a little box on it and a microphone in front of him. That's the show because <laughs> we're making electronic music and you like it, but this is what it looks like. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> Rather than have a bunch of people sort of cosplaying guitars. Yeah, right. This is, exactly. This is how we made it. This is this it. Is, this is what. This is what. This is it. This is what it's like so, in the room. Do you know? It's, it, it also makes me think of of screenwriting and all the people that you know. They've they've read all their screenwriting guides. Uh, the Academy Francaise thing I'm talking about. Oh yeah, um, yeah. The people that say, "Well, I have to have my inciting incident now," and Act Two has to be about the existential question of the film, and then I've got to have someone saving the cat. And uh, then I've got to have somebody going into the woods. <laughs> and then I've got to have somebody finding out. You know, although it is close to us. I mean, it's not enforceable by law by Cardinal Bloody Richelieu. But um, <laughs> you know, there, are, there are people who, who read, the, uh, you know, read screenwriting guides and go, well, I have to do this. Right. I, right. I, I have to do exactly what it says. And then there's the one guy who goes, well, I don't see why we need that one on page 35. That's just stupid. And writes yeah. a way around it. And then you get, uh, you know, American Beauty out of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just something brilliant. Well, you, or you know, Charlie Kaufman. <laughs> as somebody who both writes and acts, you have to let your characters take you where they want to go. I think right. you, can, you can really, I mean, that sounds very airy-fairy, but you, know, you can tell as an actor when a character is doing something because a playwright needs them to. Yeah, you know, yeah. Why am I making this decision? Oh, because this has to happen in three pages time. Right. Now, where do I find it? Because right. that's not, that's not something that's happened that this person is doing because they need to do it. It's because, you know, they've got to be off stage for the blancmange to come on. So, <laughs> it, it, you know, it can, <laughs> those kinds of restrictions can be really useful to work within. It'd be really interesting to sit down and try and write an Academy Francaise play. That takes oh, place no in kidding. a day where everyone behaves according to decorum, no soliloquizing, no supernatural, and you could you could you could absolutely do it. I'm just wondering mm -hmm. if the play I saw you direct. No, there's no decorum in that play at all. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, I, I, oh, I you mean you five, uh, women uh, the, five women in the yeah, five women wearing the same uh, dress? Yeah. 
I'm just thinking, you know, it's all in the same room and it's all in the same day. And mm-hmm. oh no, decorum! <laughs> no decorum! No decorum! These women are definitely, yeah, they're definitely checking out dudes and talking about, you know, naughty girl things. And you know, by the end of it, they've come up with some incredible truths about themselves. And whoa, okay, yeah, I don't know, like. You know, I, I think back to poor Rodrigue and Chimene, and I have no idea if the opera is based on Corneille's play, because it is, you know, it's, 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 it's folklore. Yeah. But the idea that a woman is struggling that much with a decision like that, knowing how she yeah. should act, but then going, I can't kill the person I love. I absolutely love him. Well, it made me think of that there's a Schiller play called Die Räuber, um, which has also been made into various operas. And the end of that, is dis- it's something like the dispossessed brother falls in with a group of bandits and the beautiful woman who loves him thinks he's dead and then she finds out that he's alive but he's a bandit and he can't dishonor her by marrying her mm. so he kills her oh and the, the, the uh. wonderful idea of romantic <laughs> love via schiller in this on this occasion is i cannot possibly dishonor you by marrying you cause criminal therefore because you love me so much the only possible answer is for me to kill you and carry on banditing amazing and that and you see that is decorum working the way the academy wanted it right she can't marry a bandit and if that means that you know if that means her life will be unhappy then she's probably better off stabbed right and then he gets to go on doing what he's doing because he's already he's already cast his lot in life I'm a bandit. Yeah, he's, I, I'm, I'm yeah. irredeemable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the way, the way, this is not a new observation, but the way men behave towards women in the name of honor in 17th, 18th, 19th century art <laughs> is extraordinary. Right. There's a, uh, another example that comes to mind. I, I, I became an opera nerd as a kid, by the way, which is why I keep checking <laughs> up. But, <clears throat> um, this, the, the, the Verdi Opera Trovatore, the hero finds out in the last act that his beloved has agreed to give herself to the evil count to save his life, but don't worry, she's taken poison. She, she's one of the, would it help if I died characters when she's saying, okay, <laughs> when, she's saying, when, she's saying to, when she's saying to the count, okay, I'll sleep with you if you, if you, if you save my boyfriend, she yep. says something like, kill me, tear me apart, stamp on my corpse, but save his life. Anyway, she, she goes back to her boyfriend Ooh. and says, oh, I've done this deal. I've done this deal whereby I'm going to save your life. It has involved me taking a certain amount of fatal poison, but I thought you'd want to know. Um, <laughs> he just sort of says, oh, my God, you agreed to sleep with the Duke. You've dishonored me. <laughs> That's, the part, Honor, man. That's the part of the story we focus on. Yeah. <laughs> Honor, allowing the patriarchy... <laughs> The, co- the concept of honor allowing the patriarchy to get away with it since at least not AD. Oh my God. Oh my God. I traversed mountains. I dragged myself across hot coals. Yes, but love, you're 15 minutes late. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose I get to run you, you over you, with my car now. <laughs> you're, you're 15 minutes late. We've gone past the 24 hours. We can't continue. <laughs> yep. Okay. Well, I think you got it. Oh, my God. Well, John, there we go. Aaron, what a pleasure. Thank you Absolutely. so much for asking me. Oh, thanks for, thanks for doing it. It was so great to do this. I love that we can connect like across countries and oceans in this way and talk about a silly little thing like a disagreement over a play. Wyoming to London, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Yep. 
Yep. All right. Well, my listeners, this is another episode of Euripides Humanities. Go ahead and like, go ahead and leave me a review if you'd like. My guest has been John Dryden Taylor, and I will see you next time. Hey friends, this is your host, Aaron Odom, coming at you again. I want to thank you for listening to today's episode. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us a review wherever you pick this podcast up. Or go ahead and like, share, subscribe, all the cool stuff you do with podcasts. We are Trident Theater. That's T-H-E-A-T-R-E. You can find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or at our website, www.tridenttheater.com. Once again, this is Aaron Odom. And we try to get a new episode out every two weeks. So hope to see you again in a fortnight. Apocalypse. Apocalypse.